Today's episode of the Total Soccer Show is brought to you by Remarkably Remote, a new daily microcast from the experts at GoToMeeting, all about making work from home work for you. With indispensable intel on how to stay sane, motivated and productive at home, Remarkably Remote is here to help you in this brave new remote working world. Find Remarkably Remote on smart speakers if you have those or subscribe on your favorite podcasting app if you don't. You can also listen at gotomeeting.com slash tips. That's gotomeeting.com slash T-I-P-S. Hello and welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Daryl Grove and I'm joined by a man who's fully developed. His name is Taylor Rockwell. Hello. I don't even know how to yes and that one. I mean, thank you, I guess, is what I'll go with. It means, if we're going to take it negatively, it means you're not going to get any better at soccer. Oh, okay. All right, so my, <laughs> my, my potential is my current uh, level. That's what you're telling me? Yeah, whatever your FIFA number is right now, it's not going up. <laughs> That's a bummer, but I mean, also accurate since I'm 35. Yes, we're both in that zone, right? Where things can, the best we can do is maintain. <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, oh, it's funny and it's also a little bit sad. It is. Well, hopefully we can get back to playing at some point before we really drop off the cliff, right? I mean, that would be, that would be ideal. I went yeah. for a bike ride today and I'll just say my fitness levels, not what they were before the pandemic. Oh, I mean, Taylor. Mine were mine were just coming back, right? You know, uh-huh. I I just got back to playing after almost a year out. I'd played my first two games, and then the pandemic. It's almost like the pandemic was designed to stop my soccer career. I mean, it feels like it was. That's probably why it was deliberately designed. We know now it was intentionally spread so that Daryl yeah. would not be able to play soccer along the timeline that he wanted. So it is a conspiracy. It's a, it's it a, is. It's it, a Daryl soccer has, conspiracy. It has uh, helpfully been timed so that my leg was able to heal. Do you remember when I only had like half the skin on my leg I was supposed to? Yes. That's kind of recovered. Oh, you're the, you're the Harry Kane of uh, Virginia Adult Soccer yes. League. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> All right, Taylor, we are not here today to talk about the Central Virginia Soccer Association. Me and my um, big head. <laughs> we are here to talk listener questions. We have, I want to say, four, five, six. It's a little complicated because one of them is a three-parter. <laughs> um, but the first question is all about the Big Development Academy news. It's from Richard Rolson. Richard Rolson asks or tells us, I recently saw it reported that the U.S. Soccer Federation is shutting down the Boys and Girls Development Academies. Questions, do you know why? What does it mean for American soccer? Is this a good thing or a bad thing or somewhere in the middle? Mm -hmm. And before we answer, it's worth noting that, one, we are not youth soccer experts, right? We we haven't coached in the Development Academy or anything like that. We don't really have inside knowledge on this. So we're going to give our best answers, but just know that this is not our area of expertise. Two, there will be an episode of Allocation Disorder, which should publish on Friday, in which Sam Stegall and Paul Tenorio, who've done some proper reporting on this story, um, will will have a much more in-depth conversation. So we're going to give like the JV response, and they're going to yes. come through and blow it out of the water. Yeah, and they're not allowed to play high school. So no. <laughs> 
<laughs> as as is required. Well done, buddy. Well done. Um, yeah. So I think the the basic answer to the first question, do we know why, is I think maybe. Okay. Um, I, I can say as much as they would say that it was uh, basically very much uh, factored by the coronavirus. The coronavirus played a major part that they were already considering maybe like suspending this season. Then they made the decision to sp- suspend this season. And I guess then they're saying that maybe because of financial losses, they're having to furlough staff and lay some people off. This then was an obvious way to save some money. Uh, but I think you could maybe f- like focus in on that last bit of a way to save money. And I think that is part of it, that it is financially easier for U.S. soccer to not be overseeing like the Development Academy program and essentially all of youth soccer at an advanced age. I think that's true. Yeah, the savings are apparently $12 million a year. That's how much the, they spend uh, on Development Academy. Uh, it's $12 million a year. So that will be saved. I think blaming the coronavirus is sort of half true, but I feel like a lot of a lot of companies are making decisions they would have liked to make that are cost saving yeah. measures, but they're doing it sooner than sooner than they would have under the cover of coronavirus. Yeah, that that is I think fairly accurate. Uh, and before people like get confused by that number, we should note that like I think what always gets repeated about U.S. soccer is the 150 million dollar surplus. And there's this idea that U.S. soccer is just constantly raking in money, and that was a sort of outlier situation from like past competitions that the U.S. was able to make a ton of money from. It was the Copa dollars. It was the Copa America Centenario, right? It was the Copa right. America Centenario slush fund. Most of it. Yes. Yes. So <laughs> in this case, 12 million dollars is money that they could use elsewhere. And it's probably money they could use to, I don't know, get better facilities so they can afford uh, to bring in more people who want to live in Chicago. Who knows? Maybe that's part (laughs) of it. They're going to build a mega apartment in Chicago. (laughs) That's what it's all going towards. So, okay, let's let's sort of maybe take the, the fact that it happened now because of coronavirus and the financial crunch of coronavirus at face value. But long term, if they were planning to do this anyway, to get out of the Development Academy, shut down the Development Academy, why would they be thinking of doing that? I mean, I think the basic answer can probably be boiled down to they don't want to be overseeing all yeah. of like youth soccer in the country. I think and I think true. it's it's a big thing that takes up a lot of time that I think if you remove that uh, responsibility from their plate, they can focus on other avenues that maybe they would rather spend their time and focus their time. And I do think maybe going back to the coronavirus thing for a moment, like we know that there was some discussion about keeping it going. They were going to fund it for another year. They wanted to at least have another season so it didn't kind of end abruptly. And I think that was even then sort of with an eye towards, but maybe after that, we're going to look at shutting it down or reducing our involvement in it. And this does seem to have been a way for them to say like, okay, we can pull out now and kind of leave it up to everybody else to figure out how best to pursue it from here. So yeah, I think this is sort of an admission that maybe the idea of a federation running um, this massive youth program wasn't necessarily a success. I mean, we know from talking to some youth coaches um, and some parents of players mm-hmm. in, in development academy programs that the way that US soccer made some decisions, like you know the player development initiative and the build outline, um, you can see the reasoning behind it, but there was no consultation with uh, various clubs um, or, or stakeholders. And it, it felt like there was a lot of diktats coming down from the top from US soccer and that the people at the bottom were sort of like, whoa, where did this come from? So, yeah. um, so maybe it's an admission that this, this is not necessarily um, the best way to run it. I'm going to move us on to the second question, Taylor. What does it mean for soccer in America? Um, So specifically uh, youth soccer, I think is, is what Richard's asking. 
The honest answer to that one is maybe listen to Paul and Sam, because I think <laughs> right now for me, it's we're not really sure. We don't really know. It, it could potentially be a positive. It could potentially be a very big negative. And I know there's well, that's a the, lot. Tyler, that's the third question. Is this good or bad? But what Fair does enough. it mean for soccer in America? I mean, I can give us a quick answer, which is one of the things that's already happened is Major League Soccer have announced that they're going to run an elite mm-hmm. youth team league, right? So it's going to be essentially the Development Academy teams of, of Major League Soccer teams, which were often the most successful, combined with some non-MLS academies. And I'm guessing it's going to be, you know, the Crossfire Academy um, near Seattle, maybe Chicago Soccers, maybe Western FC, like some of those uh, like really well-known development academies that we know are successful. And it seems like MLS, that they want their teams to only be competing at the highest, highest level. And it means that they won't be playing some of the the sort of less successful development academies. That's what it means for soccer in America. It means there'll be... Um, It'll be more concentrated in terms of elite players. We, I mean, I think that is the likely way they go. There is some speculation that maybe they will only have MLS academies. That's something that some owners have wanted reportedly, but others want it to be a bit more inclusive. Then there's the question I've seen, of USL, I've seen an MLS, USL. I've seen an MLS statement that says we will include non-MLS teams in this. Yeah, I'm, I'm referring to, to, I think at the time, there were like conversations from different owners about what different owners wanted. So yeah. it's good that they've gone that route. But then Agreed. I think, have they settled the USL issue? No, we, I think USL right. is maybe going to do its own thing for a little while and then I maybe eventually be absorbed. And I know, for example, the only thing we know for sure here in Richmond, right? We have Richmond United, mm-hmm. uh, the academy here that was a development academy. They have gone and joined the ECNL, which, is so, which was sort of like the rival to the development academy. Yeah, and they are not alone in that one. Yeah. Uh, they, they have expanded their numbers uh, pretty drastically uh, since mm-hmm. this happened and had already been doing so on the uh, the girls' side of, of soccer. Yes. I think they've added two or four teams at this point, but that had already been sort of a thing that was happening because ECNL on the girls' side was, I believe I'm correct in saying, stronger than uh, the girls' development yeah. academy side. So we've been talking mostly boys so far, right, because mm-hmm. it, this involves a lot of MLS academies. On the girls' side, for people who don't know, ECNL was the dominant league, right? It's where all the best clubs played was in ECNL until about three years ago when so u.s soccer started the boys development academy in 2007 right the girls development academy didn't start until three years ago and they really muscled into ecnl space and put a lot of pressure on elite players to join development academy teams and to get clubs to leave the ecnl that's i think where the most damage has been done here because a lot of people had to sort of make a um, like an A or B decision uh, three years ago. Mm-hmm. And the the, uh, the clubs and the players that chose to go Development Academy, uh, from what I've seen, they feel very betrayed, right? Because they were told this is going to be the future, this is the way to go. And now that decision's been reversed. Yeah, I mean, so at, at the very uh, basic level of what does it mean for soccer in America, it means that the United States Soccer Federation is probably even less popular than it was with <laughs> yeah. uh, some club coaches, uh-huh. uh, be, because now you will have to have clubs. Uh, I think it's 14 on the boys' side have already applied for and been accepted to the ECNL, uh, which means that you'll have better competition there theoretically, but it still is a lot of teams that have to kind of be sorted out, because we're talking about, I, I think the numbers I saw were there were 81 U19, 88 U17, 94 U15 teams, that's 260 three teams just in those three age groups that are like already sort of having to move around obviously some of them from the same club but still it's a lot of clubs that now have to land and kind of reconfigure yes. and figure out new divisions figure out new travel schedules because that's a big part of it now uh, if you have fewer teams in different areas then it's going to be more challenging in terms of the expenses and the travel time i guess the I don't want to say upside, but the sort of advantage of doing this during the coronavirus is that soccer is not currently happening, right? Mm -hmm. So you do have time to 
like have this this weird this very weird downtime that we've all got around the world um to figure out which league do i join and what does the future look like so at least there's this little pause that everybody's got to try and figure it out i still don't think i still don't like that u.s soccer just pulled the rug out from everybody from underneath everybody in this surprise fashion but at least there is time to figure things out yeah, I mean, it's it's it seems part for the course lately with U.S. soccer making yeah. interesting decisions. <laughs> is how I'll phrase and that one. Actually, I don't know if we've said this specifically, but this is part of the the new leadership, right? Mm-hmm. This is uh, Cindy Palo Cohn and is it uh, Will Wilson? I believe is the guy's name. I was just trying to remember. I, I wasn't sure because that sounds suspiciously like Wade Wilson, aka yeah. Deadpool. <laughs> and then we also have a player who used to play on one of our teams, right? Called William Williams. I always want to call the new CEO oh, yeah. William Williams, but it's not. I think it's Will Wilson. Um, It'd be but, interesting if if Will Williams took over. Oh, he he. He'd definitely have some things to say. <laughs> um, but I think this was like, this is like new leadership and this is a decision they were going to make, it looks like, yeah. in the future. And they've just decided to do it now because of everything that's happened um, in terms of coronavirus pandemic and lockdown in the last, in the last few months. All right, to the, to the final question, is this a good thing or a bad thing or somewhere in the middle? I think it's all of the above. I think it's probably all the above. Um, I, I would say, first off, I want to clarify that, again, we are not experts on this subject. There are people out there who... I've changed my mind. I'm an expert. <laughs> there are people out there who know much more than we do, and I think there are people who are going to take issue with what we say no matter what. But I am right now sort of of the mind that this could be a good thing. Uh, yes. I think it is probably somewhere in between. But I think specifically when it comes to like what this means for MLS, because I think what we're going to see is MLS like have the academies, have the high-profile uh, other like development academies that aren't MLS-related come in, and I think that does strengthen them. There was talk that uh, the U19 age group could be eliminated, and instead we'll see proper reserve teams and yeah, reserve I mean, competitions. Last year, we saw North Texas SC, which was essentially FC Dallas's U19s, right. absolutely dominate USL League One. <laughs> Yeah, and, and and I think that 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 helps in terms of like kind of streamlining the system that takes young players and gets them into major league soccer, gets them yeah. into professional soccer, and sort of develops them quickly. Because the idea was that by the age of nineteen, like most clubs already know, they're signing kids to homegrown contracts at, at sixteen, seventeen years old. So maybe nineteen was an unnecessary thing. So I think it removes some of that. The issue then is that you're by kind of like combining things and isolating it a bit more, you are making it harder for people who aren't associated with MLS clubs or that higher level development academy, yes. whatever it ends up getting called, that league, it makes it harder for them to find uh, avenues to professional soccer. Yeah, I think it's a good thing for those elite clubs, right? It's a good thing if you're an MLS academy and it's a good thing if you're one of those academies that is considered good enough to play alongside the MLS teams because all those all those teams will get to play each other more and won't be playing against the sort of less talented development academies. And from what I've read, it will also give the, the MLS and other academies time to enter international competitions and play against, you know, European yeah. academies and all that kind of stuff. I think that's probably good um, for elite player development. So in terms of um, high-profile players coming through and either getting MLS homegrown contracts or, you know, going over to Europe at uh, 17, 18 or, you know, whatever your passport is, I actually don't think it's going to be a bad thing. It might even be a slight positive in terms of the uh, the real upper echelons of talent. Yeah. So this doesn't mean no more Pulisics, no more McKennies, no more Pamacals, right? Um, right? But I think it, it's a bad thing in terms of if you're one of those mid-tier clubs who had sort of bought into the whole development academy thing you you might be in trouble right now maybe financial trouble uh maybe in trouble in terms of the reputation of your club and i think it that might be a bad thing for just the wider sport of soccer in america yeah i mean i mean we should remember here that like u.s soccer is justifying this decision or at the very least arguing that 
a lot of this decision is rooted in coronavirus. And it's not as though they are like dealing with that in isolation. Every single club involved is also dealing with yeah. the coronavirus and a lack of games and a lack of income and revenue. And so there is that point as well that like U.S. soccer sort of throwing these teams into even more chaos yeah. probably does not help a lot of these teams stay functioning as they have been uh, and as they probably would have hoped to continue to be. And then you remove some of the local clubs or like 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 Richmond United, for example, who were in the Development Academy are now going to be in uh, ECNL. Yeah. Like they're not going to be able to play like DC United's uh, like uh, Development Academy team. So then they've got to travel a bit more. That increases the expenses. So and they might you, lose players, right? Argue. They might, yeah, they exactly. might either have really talented players in the academy right now who now don't want to be involved because it's not a Development Academy or players who are thinking about joining Richmond United. And we're using them just because they're a local example of a team that was Development Academy is now ECNL um, who might make a different decision in the future instead of joining Richmond United. I'm speculating, obviously, but that sort of makes sense to me, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like in the middle of uh, in the middle of everybody trying to stay afloat. If you're a mid-level DA club, uh, US Soccer has thrown you not not like a not a life ring, but a, an anvil. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> hey, and I mean, and, and we move back to the system of like, like if you are a, a very talented, you know, like early teens player who wants to kind of continue on doesn't really see college as the avenue for like being a highly developed player but instead you want to play for an MLS team it then means that you're probably going to have to travel a lot more to try to get into an MLS academy and then you run that risk of like uh, having to have players move to different areas in order to play and you leave some areas kind of deprived of high level competition and so we kind of get back to that age old issue of the United States being very very big and how do you keep everybody involved in the game because we want everybody to be yeah. involved. And, but there's, and there's a potential opportunity here for more people to get involved in the game and more people to get spotted yep. by US soccer because one of the big complaints about the Development Academy system is that when US soccer did scouting for youth national teams, they only scouted Development Academies, right? So right. there is an opportunity here for US soccer to stop. And essentially, it was a form of self-promoting the Development Academies by only selecting youth national team players from the development academies sort of to prove the point that if you want to be an elite player you have to be in a development academy right it was like a self-fulfilling prophecy that u.s soccer had set up um i really dislike that i know a lot of coaches really dislike that at least that system will no longer exist right when the uh, when the press releases come out about the u20 national teams it won't say like uh, 20 of the 23 players are in development academies anymore i mean I hope. I don't know if that's necessarily the case. I mean, it it might be that they don't have the incentive to promote development academy players. That's what I'm it saying. It may also well be that they don't have the resources to properly scout all of these new teams who are going to be kind of all over the place. So instead, they just kind of stick with what's gotten them there. They stick with MLS development academy teams and maybe mm. the few elite teams that they're playing against. It could well oh, be that right. the status quo remains. It could. Yeah, you're right. It could be just this new MLS elite league, which doesn't have a, a name yet. But that could mm. be where all the all the youth national team players are scouted from. I mean, may- maybe from being super optimistic that some of the resources that would have been spent on, you know, administrating the development academy could go to more scouting so that US soccer could send people or could set up like identification camps in, let's say, non-traditional US soccer spaces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, the, mean, that's my optimistic possible. take. It's, it's, that is an optimistic take for sure. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, have, we'll maybe get into more of that when we answer today's final question. Tell you that. All right. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you have anything else to say on this before we move on? Apart from obviously listen to Allocation Disorder this Friday because we expect <laughs> we're really putting the pressure on Paul and Sam here, right? But based on the recent episodes, we're expecting a really good episode from Paul and Sam. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's worth listening to them, not just because they are uh, informed and smart and have uh, resources and connections that we do not, but also because I think we both tend to try to see the glasses half full. And, and yeah. it's worth noting that, like, with that in mind, we are probably looking for the reasons why this could be a good thing. Yeah. And maybe less inclined to look at why this might be a bad thing. And that is fairly universally how this has been perceived as a failure, as this is a step backwards, as this is very bad for U.S. soccer. So I, I'm assuming Paul and Sam will probably get a bit more into why it could be potentially very bad for soccer in America. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of people have argued that it's bad because it gives MLS more power, which it does, right? Because they're no longer being overseen by U.S. soccer in terms of development academy stuff. MLS academies are kind of free to do whatever they want now. Um, yep. And you could, again, you could see that as a bad thing because it increases MLS's stranglehold on American soccer. I am inclined to see it as a good thing because now MLS academies can sort of do what they want. I mean, I sort of, I'm in the position where I accept that MLS is the the big dog in terms of um, how soccer happens in the United States. And it's probably not a bad thing to let them do more of what they want to make themselves successful, including at academy yeah, level. I- I also think the the Venn diagram of like people who think Major League Soccer is bad for soccer in America and people who think U.S. Soccer is doing a bad job is pretty much a circle. Yeah. Uh, so like I think then it's it makes it even more difficult because it's sort of like oh U.S. Soccer they're only favoring development academy teams they're not doing enough to promote soccer every everywhere else and then U.S. Soccer withdraws from the conversation and instead kind of leaves it up to everybody else to figure out and then it's U.S. Soccer failing because they're withdrawing from the conversation that some people felt like they shouldn't have even been involved in the first place. So it's it's a Confusing, complex situation, and that's, once again, why I'm happy to hand it off to Paul and say. <laughs> All right, two final things I want to note on this. Um, not Development Academy related, but um, US soccer news related, uh, Taylor. Um, you've probably seen this as well. There were also two announcements that Brian Remedy, uh, the Chief Administrative Officer, and Tanya Wallach, the Chief Talent and Inclusion Officer, were both let go. So US mm-hmm. soccer really cleaning house and like just straight up firing some people like not paying their salaries anymore i think a lot of development academy staff also let go and they've also announced that youth national teams that mostly didn't have coaches i would i would would jump in really fast to say like i I, maybe this is an american thing i think it's important to note that they were laid off not fired laying off is that different like they yeah there was like budgetary constraints like basically we can't continue to pay you we don't have the budget in place coronavirus has limited things fired tends to imply like malfeasance, you didn't do your job right. We're getting rid of you. You stole post. I'm going to hit my lamp to emphasize it. <laughs> yeah, it's like, a, it's like a bell that you hit. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but thank you. No, thank you for that distinction because I wasn't aware of it. Um, so Brian Remedy and Tonya Wallach uh, laid off, not fired. Um, yep. Youth national teams on hold until 2021 are the U16, U18, U19, and women's oh U23 national teams, which awesome. mostly didn't have coaches and also didn't have any competitive things going on. But that's a concern that that might continue going forward, right? Is that the US no longer fields um, certain age group national teams? Uh, I mean, it's possible. That would bum me out pretty hard. Yeah, let's, let's hope those come back as the coronavirus goes away. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Many more listener questions to answer, Taylor. Mm-hmm. But I think we should get well dressed to answer them. And we can All do right. so with today's sponsor, the Black Tux. That's right. Uh, the Black Tux helps you find your perfect fit without leaving home, and they help you do that for free and without uh, the use of a tape measure. Uh, because I feel like we might have a tape measure in our house. I have no idea where it is. It's probably in the drawer where everything goes when you don't have a home for it. Popular um, question. Popular question in my apartment. Where's the tape measure? 
Exactly. Yeah. But even then, like, I have, like, a measuring tape. But the idea of having, like, the tape that you need for tailoring, the sort of loose one that yeah, you can like, kind one. of measure arm with, I don't know how you use that one. I don't know how to find it. But when I find it, exactly. I know how to use it. <laughs> but luckily, with the Black Ducks, you don't need to utilize that because they basically have a Find My Fit option where you answer basic questions like height, weight, shoulder size. And shoulder size isn't like, like uh, what inches, like, from one side to the other. It's more like medium, regular. Like, like I see. you don't have to, like, get too much into the measurements, but they can kind kind of give you a fairly accurate approximation uh, and then they will send you your suit or your tux or what have you and then you can try it on and make sure that the fit is correct before the event and if it's not then you can send it back and kind of get it adjusted as you need to make sure it is perfect come the time of your event or come the time of you answering list of questions and wanting to be fancy exactly you gotta stay well dressed gotta stay well dressed so they ship you your suit um, at least two weeks before the event so you can really try it out there is no last minute shenanigans with the blacktux.com that's one of things i appreciate no last minute shenanigans everything arrives in plenty of time and no shenanigans in terms of you're not getting a suit made of plastic or anything like that <laughs> you're getting 100 merino wool for their suits 100 cotton for their shirts real leather for their shoes so you kind of get the best uh that you could want uh, and i believe I, I saw something that like i think they you like they should cost like 1500 a suit instead if you wanted to purchase one i think it's like usually between four and five hundred dollars so a decent value there but if you want to get even more money off there there is a way to make that happen is it to rent oh but also to get 10 percent off there yeah is. so yes. you can order your suit or tuxedo at theblacktux.com and enjoy 10% off with code soccer. That's theblacktux.com with code soccer for 10% off your purchase. The Black Tux, formal wear for the moment. All right. Thank you very much to the Black Tux for sponsoring today's episode. Thank you very much to Tim Cato, uh, who is an NBA writer for The Athletic, I believe covering the Mavericks. He gave us yes. three questions uh, I, that I, we're going to... I was really excited to include this just because it means that there's a non-soccer writer for The Athletic who's listening to our show. So hello, Tim Cato. <laughs> uh, he gave us three questions that we're going to answer in varying lengths, starting with, can you explain what has gone wrong with Mario Goetz's career? Uh, he's still only 27 and barely plays now. Uh, an update to that one, we'll be leaving Borussia Dortmund at the end of the season. Yeah. Uh, contract talks have broken down. And for those who really don't know, the big deal with Goetz is he scored the winning goal for Germany at the 2014 World Cup right? When he was in his mm-hmm. early 20s. Um, and so I understand why Tim is asking, okay, he's 27 and now he's barely even playing. So what went wrong, Taylor? Or did anything so, go wrong is the other way of asking that question. Yes, a couple of things went wrong. Um, first of all, there are the, the health issues. He had a metabolic disorder, uh, which it, basically he kept getting muscle injuries that took a long time to heal that like as soon as he one would heal, another one would pop up. And it seemed like something was more like systematically wrong. That was the case. Uh, so he had to kind of uh, call a halt uh, mid-season uh, to deal with uh, metabolic disorders in, I believe, March of 2017. Yeah, he was so out for like six months, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, so it's it, a big part of it is the injury issue, but I also think there's a a stranger narrative in addition to the injuries of him almost being like he's very good at lots of different things, but not maybe world class elite at that one thing you need to solidify a position. And so mm. when he moves to Bayern Munich, uh, he moves there because he wants to play for Pep Guardiola. That was the selling point for him. It's why he turned down uh, a contract renewal at Borussia Dortmund to go to Bayern. But I think Pep kind of uses him in various roles. Sometimes he's a 10, sometimes he's like a deeper midfielder, sometimes he's wide, sometimes he's a false nine. 
But he never really like solidifies one spot. And I think there was an idea that then when Robert Lewandowski comes in, they can kind of plug them in. It will work really well. And instead, Lewandowski kind of almost limits what Gutza can offer. And so he becomes an effective squad player, but not much above that. And then I think the metabolic issues start coming into play here. Yeah. And it sort of like uh, presents itself as him not working very hard. So yeah, uh, if, I'm, if I look at the timeline, he gets mm-hmm. diagnosed with this metabolic disorder when he's back at Dortmund, right? Correct. But mm-hmm. that's got to mean that maybe towards the end or in the middle of his Bayern years, this yeah. probably was present but undiagnosed. Is that like We can't say that definitely because we don't have his medical records, but that would mm-hmm. seem to make sense, right? It, it would, because like this is when uh, Franz Beckenbauer comes out and says like he just doesn't seem like he has the energy or the effort that's oh, needed to play at a club like that's this. That's almost a medical diagnosis, right? It just, really yeah. is. <laughs> uh, and like I think he says like he'll lose a challenge and then he'll just stand there and watch, and Do you he know doesn't what? keep running. Can I? Okay, I want to offer a Daryl analogy here. So sure. I was diagnosed with type one diabetes when I was thirteen. Mm-hmm. Um, the year before, I'd been dropped from the youth team that I was playing for. Um, and they told me you don't seem to have the energy or enthusiasm that you used to have. Yeah. And it turns out it was just I was having like really high blood sugar, which really does like you make and Jay it Cutler, man. make it hard Cutler. to do. Did the same thing happen to him? Um, did, like, and yeah. I and I really th- I felt it as well. Like I was tired and I just wasn't as like into it as I used to be. So the coaches that dropped me were correct in the same way that Franz Beckenbauer is correct, but there's an underlying medical problem there, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, but the way that ends up getting categor- like uh, categorized, characterized, the way it gets discussed in the media is a question of his mentality. And I think that's really important. Yeah. That the question becomes, does he have the mentality to play at a club like Bayern Munich? And the answer is effectively no. Pep Guardiola kind of loses favor in him. It becomes a public spat. The agent blames Guardiola for uh, Gutz's like, career, kind of uh, the downward trajectory. Uh, and then when Guardiola leaves, Gutz has a conversation with Ancelotti before he arrives as the new manager. And his basically told you don't fit into my plans i don't need you so he goes back to Borussia dortmund then we have the metabolic disorder but then the question becomes like once he recovers from it in the 2017-18 season he plays 23 games 2018-19 he plays 26 so it feels like okay he's back in the squad he's back in contention he's back in the good graces and then this past season he really falls off again he drops to i think 13 appearances in total uh not just in bundesliga but in all competitions and more more drastically drops from playing around like 70 minutes a game to playing around around 40 minutes a game, so it becomes much more of an impact substitute. Well, and I think this is where it goes back to... Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say that my guess for this is that now we know that he was going to be out of contract in the summer and is not signing a new contract. Could this be that he was like sort of let them know that he was planning to leave all along and that's why he wasn't so heavily involved? No, I think he was told, you can go ahead and leave. Uh, oh. And, and the, when, when they went to contract renewals, he was offered, I think, like half of what his current wage is, which he was not willing to oh. accept. But I think it was almost that, like, we don't want to be seen as not giving you a renewal, so we will uh, give you an offer that you're not going to accept. So then we can say, <laughs> yeah, he didn't want to stay here. But, it's the opposite but, of a horse's head in the bed. Yes, exactly. It was a horse's um, head on a horse's body, just as it's supposed to be. <laughs> they just showed um, him a picture of a healthy horse, and he was like, whoa. I think so. (laughs) I'm now slightly confused by this analogy. But I think this goes back to the idea that he is a jack-of-all-trades, master of none. And like in in those seasons that I mentioned where he's getting a lot of time, he is probably one of the more important players for a squad that isn't really pushing Bayern. There's moments where it seems like they might, and then they fall off. And so you look at after the season in which he plays the highest number of minutes, the most number of games, they come in and add Julian Brandt, they add Sorgan Hazard, then obviously this January, they add Erling Haaland. Meanwhile, Jaden Sancho has a stat 
established himself, and they move away from that four-two-three-one, which really suits Götze as that number ten. And he suddenly like can do a couple different things, but he doesn't really excel in any one position. And in most of those positions, they have someone who does, and so he becomes this expensive, uh, well-known kind of role player who they can fit in but it doesn't really mean that he's going to start and he's not really a person that you look to to be a pivotal leader in that team and so I think a lot of boxes get ticked in terms of he costs us a lot of money we could probably get rid of him somebody else will pick him up and meanwhile we can reinforce with younger better players okay so to wrap this up though he's only 27 Mm -hmm. Um, the metabolic thing seems mostly to have been treated and either under control or solved right yeah Um, so right now it's more of just that he doesn't quite fit the Dortmund system right he's available on a free transfer if he chooses the correct next move um, you could see Mario Goetze back in form, right? You could see mm-hmm. the rebirth of Mario Goetze's career. And I think bigger picture, like maybe he's never going to be like the sort of Ballon d'Or winning superstar that scoring the winning World Cup goal in 2014 would suggest. But yeah, he could, did you know that he was supposed to be the next Messi? Like literally exactly. every article that discusses him refers to exactly. That. So that's like an unfair thing, right? And also you could you could argue he's already scored the World Cup winning goal, right? Like most people yeah, don't that. get to do that. Yeah, so Messi like, hasn't done that. You don't have to exactly. Yeah, you don't have to live up to that. You already did it. You can just look at your World Cup winners medal all the time. Um, so, but we could still see some great stuff from Goethe if he chooses the the right move next. And yeah. he might be a a very popular player in the near future because teams will not be wanting to spend much money on transfer fees. Yes, that is definitely true. <laughs> so, like, it's also interesting because when you see him linked, you see him linked with DC United and MLS teams, but then he's also linked with, like, Liverpool and Chelsea and yeah. uh, big teams in France, big teams in Germany. So he could really go to a lot of different places, and I think, to your point, it is sort of very important which one he chooses and what he has promised in terms of his importance within the squad. Because yeah. he still, still could definitely rebound and become an important player for Germany and, and an important player at club level and sort of move back towards being one of those big players that we all kind of know uh, or maybe not if he chooses the wrong route then maybe he continues to kind of decline a bit yeah I don't want him to be a big player like he was when he had the metabolic disorder that's um, fair <laughs> that's a bad joke um, alright should we move on to parts 2 and 3 of Tim Cato's question no, it just means I have to make more diabetes jokes <laughs> yeah, go ahead go ahead mm-hmm. um, Tim Cato the second part of his question what would it take for Dortmund to win the title next season if they retain everyone, mostly meaning Jaden Sancho, would they even be the favourites to win the Bundesliga? Um, I think it would take Bayern Munich having a very bad <laughs> like rest of the season if and when the season resumes, and then maybe losing a bunch of players. I think it would take Bayern, Bayern Munich Bayern. going out of business. Yeah, <laughs> and especially to your point about how maybe teams are going to be very hesitant to spend money in the transfer market or to spend large sums of money. I think the ones that will still maybe spend a decent amount, maybe not what they necessarily had in mind before the coronavirus, are the teams that are sort of global brands that yeah. know they will still have income no matter what. Bayern Munich would be one of those. Yep. So we would expect Bayern to reinforce. There's still all of the links with many different players, uh, Serginho Dest amongst them, Lira Asana amongst them. So I think Bayern I are going to strengthen and get better uh so it would require and kai havertz as well yeah so it would require Bayern to basically not strengthen i think that's like part number one and they've also they've also just signed hansi flick to a new longer term Mm -hmm. contract right so they've kind of settled their coaching woes they have a coach in place that they trust for the uh at least medium term future Bayern seem all set to have another period of uh or to continue their period of sustained success Mm -hmm. right so that's the reason basically Bayern Munich are the reason that Dortmund can't ever be favorites um right now to to be uh to win the Bundesliga there's also just the Dortmund model right the Dortmund model is basically to have 
superstars before they become superstars. So the Jaden Sancho thing, they're almost certainly going to sell Jaden Sancho. And it's mm-hmm. kind of a classic Dortmund move, right? You have these players, they hit a certain level of fame and um, uh, uh, popularity in other clubs wanting them. And then they leave to spend their very best years at other clubs. And it's what happened yes. with Mats Hummels. It's what theoretically should have happened with Mario Goetze, right? He spent like his mid-twenties um, at Bayern Munich. Lewandowski uh, is, a, is a big one, yeah. Um, Kagawa, yeah. So a lot of players, essentially, the Dortmund model is to have young superstars and as they hit their peak, they move on to a slightly bigger team. I mean, it'll happen to Haaland, right? Haaland will not spend 10 years at Borussia Dortmund unless something goes very wrong. No, I mean, there was already talk of him going to Real Madrid in the summer. Exactly. Uh, obviously, prior to coronavirus. But yeah. yes, that was already uh, much conversation. So they'll, they'll always be exciting and competitive, but then they'll always be Bayern Munich who have uh-huh. like players at their peak. And that's the reason Dortmund won't ever go into the season as favourites, but could still win the Bundesliga if they just happen to put it all together like they almost did last season. Are you, are you ready yeah. for the third question? I think so. I mean, I wish there was a more optimistic answer about how Dortmund could do it, but I do think it's just as long as Bayern are strong and stable, it's going to be difficult. Yeah, and I wouldn't ask Dortmund to change the model because I find it really exciting. It's the reason that Jadon Sancho got a chance to play immediate first-team football, right? It's the reason Christian Pulisic was able to come through at Dortmund is because they would take gambles on teenagers coming through their youth system. It's the reason Gio Reyna is having his moment right now, right? So I would not ask Dortmund to change just for the future of the English and American national teams. Yeah, I mean, and even <laughs> even you could even like sort of make the argument that maybe they've changed a little bit by bringing in Axel Witzel and Emre Jean players who are a little bit older. But even then, that's sort of players that they can find who are available at a valuation that Dortmund are okay with. Yes. It's not like they've changed the model to drop sixty million on a twenty-seven-year-old uh, three different times. Yeah, and you like you will never see Dortmund like bid big money for a player at another team. No. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it, yeah. I mean, I mean, big money by big money standards. Yeah. Big money by like Brazil, like uh, like Fortuna Dusseldorf standards, maybe, but but, uh, but not quite to that next level. Yeah. All right. So that's that's the reason why mm-hmm. Bayern will be favourites. Also, that's just yeah. the way German football is, right? Unfortunately, right now. Um, the final question from Tim Cato: Is there any particular reason why Berlin doesn't have a dominant team despite being the largest city? And Tim's right, right? Most European yep. countries, the largest city, I like how he cleverly didn't use the word capital because that, mm-hmm. obviously that doesn't always go right. Um, like London, uh, Milan or Rome, like all these big cities always have like uh, great, great teams. Uh, why doesn't Berlin have one? Does Rome have a great, great team? It has two. <laughs> Rome and Lazio who are okay. I mean, yeah, but historically, okay, compare the size of Roma and Lazio yeah. with Hertha Berlin. That's fair. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and I think, and I think the answer to this, which uh, is not just my Americanness, I'm going to go ahead and blame the Soviet Union. I I would agree with you. It seems yep. to me that the the problem is what happened to Berlin like after World War Two, yeah. which it's was like a wall. Yeah, from the basically the 50s to the 90s, right to the uh, like 89, 90 is when the wall came down. And my understanding of this, I remember, I think I was with you when I learned that it's not that Berlin was in the middle of Germany and the wall just happened to go down the middle. Berlin was like deep, is deep into Eastern Germany. So East Germany. And so even though half of Berlin was technically, you know, Western, it was not connected to the rest of Germany except for like by one big road, right? Yeah, so I mean, Berlin, and there was literally Berlin, a time period in which that road was cut off and we had to airlift in yes. supplies for, for the western half of, of Berlin to remain functional. So, yeah, basically the period when big soccer clubs grew, you know, like Amsterdam, Ajax Amsterdam grew, uh, is a period where Berlin was like really half of it was cut off mm-hmm. and the part that wasn't cut off was really hard to get to. 
Yeah, and I feel like I get stick for saying this, but like I feel like I know it to be true that even as recently as like ten years ago, Berlin was sort of this city where it was like, yeah, you can move there. It's like cheap, and there's like like available housing in a way that there isn't in yeah. Munich because it's not as desirable of a city. I think that's changed. I think they really like doubled down on arts and culture and restaurants and things like that. Honestly, the longest time Berlin was culture, not the most desirable place. Arts and culture is what happens when you have affordable rent. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, but like going back to sort of the the basic question, like you look at the 2014 World Cup uh, squad, and I believe I'm correct in saying that Tony Cruz is the only member of the team that's born in the East. I think this season is the first that time that I can remember, at least, that we had two teams who are historically from the East because Hertha were in Western uh, Berlin. They they or were in West Berlin, I should say. Uh, but you have RB Leipzig, who existed in a different capacity uh, in the Soviet era. Yeah. And then you have Union, uh, Union Berlin, and those are your two, but that's, that's a rarity. You don't usually have that many teams from the East, and we're talking about two out of 18. Yeah, and so yeah, that's it. Berlin just has a weird history that doesn't mm-hmm. doesn't match up with the rest of Western Europe, which is where the rest of the, the these big cap, like capital or biggest city teams are. Yeah, and we should, and then final thing with that in mind, that like we should also add that yes, there was an East German league with a lot of East German teams, but then you had a lot of involvement from the government. You had the KGB or the Stasi, I guess as it would have been for Eastern Germany, involved in things and influencing things. So that, that wasn't necessarily the best example of a competitive league, so much so that when that wall comes down, lots of players move to, to West Germany as quickly as they can because yeah. there's more money and better football. And lots of Coca-Cola. Um, all right. <laughs> Next question comes from Jacob Titus. Jacob Titus mm. wants to know, if you could drop three current U.S. men's national team players into the same squad in a top five European league, who would you choose and where would you play them? So this, See, I, I found this question fascinating. I ended up texting you to say, like, do they get to start or would they have mm-hmm. to compete? And we both agreed that they would have to compete for their spot, right? Yeah, I think so. Or it was like places where I felt like they could compete. Yeah, fair. Where it wouldn't just be like, all right, well, they're going to go sit on the bench now, but at least they're getting paid. Uh, and I have three different teams with like three different groupings of players. I have the exact same. Let's hear your first right. one first then. All right, I'm going to go uh, Monaco because Ooh. Monaco, similar to Dortmund, have that model of get young players in for a very, very small amount of money or relatively small amount of money, play them, develop them. Like maybe they get very good and you have a strong season, but then you sell them on for a lot of money. You kind of continuously reinvest that. And I feel like Paxton Pomacall, uh, Ulianez, Jesus Ferreira, and maybe even Sergio Dest, though he's probably going to Bayern Munich. Dest could basically play for all three teams that I have listed here. But those three, <laughs> Pomacall, Yanez, and Ferreira, I feel like could go to Monaco, especially a Monaco that I think are currently ninth in the French League, yeah. uh, and could probably find some playing time, uh, work hard, get in that first 11, maybe raise their valuation, and maybe do well in the league, but maybe get sold on in a couple seasons. I like it. The only part I don't like is sending Dest there, because I think he's already on a path from Ajax to Bayern. He doesn't need yeah. a diversion to the south of France. Nah. <laughs> um, my first one is Spurs. I would okay. send to, to Tottenham Hotspur Josh Sargent as the Harry Kane backup. Okay. So anytime Harry Kane's injured or, you know, if they just want to rest Harry Kane, Josh Sargent is the guy that gets to play in the Premier League in his place. He wouldn't have the pressure of starting, but he would have the sort of uh, the good fortune of playing whenever Kane is injured. I think it would be a good squad to be a part of. I think there's a spot to compete there. Similarly, Reggie Cannon would join him mm-hmm. at Spurs. Spurs have long needed a right back, right? So Cannon would be competition. You think Serge Aurier is getting the job done? I, I, yeah, I'm not a huge fan, so I think he'd be competition. Serge, I'm a defensive liability Aurier. I would no. I'd actually say Serge Aurier is 
decent defensively. Um, he makes one catastrophic mistake almost every game. That's true. <laughs> yes, I yeah. take your point. He's okay. It, he's just like he always has that one. Like, what was that? You're, sir? Yeah, you're right. He's interesting, right? I think one on one, he's a sort of like good almost one basaka mm-hmm. type uh, really tough guy to get past but then there is always one comical error so yes. that would be reggie cannon's opportunity is the mm-hmm. the week after that comical error um and then spurs need their midfield strengthening i would send paxton pomacal there to uh okay. to compete for a spot in tottenham's midfield so this is like a uh, three guys who uh kind of need to move either either within or to europe who i think could really compete for a spot at a big big team like spurs all right, uh, so I had a similar idea, but I, I felt like Spurs might be a bit too high for some of these folks. So I looked at Southampton, where I think Ralph Hasenhutl could do a good job and maybe is the right man for that club and everything that they yeah. kind of have come to identify of being this attacking, high-energy, exciting sort of squad. Yeah, they're like, they're like been, Red Bull England, basically. Yeah, but they've been not particularly successful defensively. Uh, it is worth noting here that like the American problem of goals and strong attackers is very, very revealing because there are so many teams that need attackers that if we had three very good attackers, you could put them on. Like Schalke, I really wanted to put a bunch of people, but I basically had Serginho Des going to Schalke and then dot, dot, dot because they need goals and I don't know who's going to give them. But at Southampton, I think they could very much use a combo. That back, that back line is going to get really strengthened by Reggie and Aaron Long and John Brooks. Nice. So that's really interesting. I had the exact same trio going somewhere else. Um, okay. I had them going to Real Mallorca to play in okay. La Liga together because they would strengthen Mallorca. And my thinking behind it was, it was actually after listening to your interview with Alexi Lalas when he talked about um, his, like the defense that played together so many times Mm-hmm. Uh, in the build-up to USA 94, that they all sort of were just this solid unit. Do you remember the moment when uh, Alexi was talking about if Colombia did go wide and start crossing in, we just knew how to deal with that? Yeah. Because, and I think it was just the reps that that team got mm-hmm. playing together. So I would love to have US defenders um, just getting reps every week together so they become a unit that we can then take to the national team level. So I've, I've uh, like shoehorned my, my thing in there for Cannonbrooks and Lunk, uh, but I'm, I'm still interested in yours at Southampton. No, I like that. I mean, it's just basically that I think they could come in straight. I looked at Southampton's defense and like there are some names in there, but there's nobody that I look at as being like, yeah, they're untouchable. Yeah. There's no chance that anybody's going to be able to like knock that person out. I do think there's a chance that you could get John Brooks and Aaron Long starting as your two center backs at Southampton. And I think, uh, I do have the faith in Reggie Cannon to go in there and, and be a strong right back for them. Uh, then I've got one more club. They were, it's a, by the it's way, a bit of, they were linked with Aaron Long. Yeah, that was a potential I, I think move. it was them and West Ham, yeah. but I looked at West Ham and just thought, no, David Moyes, I'm okay with you. Um, and then my fir- my third club, my last one, is one that I, I probably not, like, this is not uh, unconnected, is, I already mentioned, is Fortuna Dusseldorf, uh, okay. where I had Miles Robinson, Dwayne Holmes, and Jordan Morris wow. going to Fortuna Dusseldorf. Can Jordan bring his dog? That's the question. <laughs> and his family as well. I mean, I, yeah, again, I doubt he goes. Uh, I tried to sign him in my FIFA 20 mode, and he, his demands were a bit high. Okay. So uh, maybe he won't be going to Dusseldorf. But that felt like a team who, like, I'm hoping they stay up in the Bundesliga, but maybe if you sent them right now, I think they are the exact right people to go in and get starting spots and help that team survive, uh, the, like, survive the relegation race and maybe stay up in the Bundesliga because Miles Robinson, I think, helps solidify that defense. I think when we saw them in person, that midfield felt like a, a midfield that is scrappy and fights hard, but it's still kind of technical, and that feels like a Dwayne Holmes midfield. And Jordan <laughs> Morris, I think, helps with the attack, runs hard, works hard, scores goals, wins the ball, uh, is a threat. And so I think those three kind of help not necessarily give you a spine. It's like ha- it's two-thirds of a spine and then, I guess, a shoulder. 
<laughs> a shoulder. Who's the shoulder? <laughs> Jordan Morris. Jordan Morris is out a shoulder. Out on, out on the outside. I see. I like it. I like it. I think that's really nice. Um, right. um, okay, my final one is Wolves. Um, mm-hmm. because of course <laughs> I genuinely I think I've said this many many times before would just love to have some Americans to support at Wolves but I feel I, like you've saved the best for last here but is I what I'm gonna think guess. there are also some guys out there who genuinely would strengthen the Wolves first team so I am sending Tyler Adams uh-huh. Weston McKenney uh-huh. and John Brooks to Wolves ah, I had to junior desk I got two of the three <laughs> we don't really have a spot for desk right because Wolves play a sort of kind of wing backy system um, so he wouldn't he wouldn't get to play um, exactly uh, so where Junior Dest is perfect and can do whatever he wants. Uh, How yeah, dare yeah. you? Well, I've got Adams, Brooks, and McKenney going uh-huh. because especially John Brooks, I think the way Wolves defend really really suits him. Right? Wolves are very compact, three centre backs, um, and they they don't get like stretched out. So you rarely get exposed in a one on one type situation. It's a lot of just balls coming into the box and you head it away. I think John Brooks would be absolutely magnificent. He'd be like a an upgrade on Willie Bowley essentially. And Willie Bowley, by the way, is having to play left centre back for Wolves despite being right-footed so that's why i think john brooks would be a perfect addition to wolves Uh, and an improvement and it would be i would argue a step up uh from wolfsburg yeah i I mean honestly like no disrespect to the bundesliga but the money on offer in the premier league unless it's uh munich and probably dortmund it's going to be a step up yeah okay um tyler adams and weston mckinney my thinking this is is where i'm confused so jao matinho is so important Mm -hmm. to the wolf central midfield three but he's also 33 years old and he yep. has to. We were talking about, like, you know, going off the cliff at some point. Like his FIFA potential number is not going up, right? Um, no. So Jao Matinho is going to need replacing in the midfield at some point. Um, Ruben Neves is either going to get sold at some point. Um, and there's, and Leon Dendonka is the third guy who's been sort of a steady, like defensive presence, but he's not necessarily like this big, undroppable next level player. I genuinely think adding Tyler Adams and Weston McKenney to the Wolves midfield would, um, would improve both. Uh, their situation and wolf situation. So basically, like, but to the point of the question, so you don't have them necessarily starting right away, but they're all sort of potential, like, deputizing replacements. Maybe they play some cup games, but then... No, they'd be immediate competition. Shorter term, they're in there. Yeah, immediate competition for uh, Neves, um, Dendonka, and Jao Matinho. Okay. Uh, I'm looking it up right now. You are correct that Jean Matinho was an 84 on FIFA, but his potential is also an 84. There we go. Tyler Adams. Tyler Adams there, we're going to find out right now, is... Of course, my internet is slowing down just to make this a difficult thing that I have to how are you, through and find a way to how stall. How are you looking this up? On my phone. On your phone, okay. <laughs> yes, I thought you'd but like fired loading. up your Xbox. You're ready to uh, yeah, Really quickly, I ran downstairs. Uh, uh, he is a 76, but with a potential of 86. So there you go. There we go. So he's, what, that's two points better than Joe Matinho. Mm-hmm. And as we know, yeah. FIFA ratings are absolute cast-iron guarantees. Yeah. Yeah. Are you implying that they're not? No, I'm saying they definitely, definitely are. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I know, there you, we go. All right. I know you haven't been watching devs, Taylor, um, but for mm-hmm. anyone who has been watching devs, then FIFA... Um, is the devs of soccer. That will make sense to, I'm going to guess, 10% of our audience. It's okay. I've got TV references later that are only going to make sense to our audience and me and not you, <laughs> so it's fine. That sounds great. Um, I- uh, but before we get to those references and another question, uh, we should talk about today's sponsor. Yeah. It's Manscaped. Manscaped, the only men's brand dedicated to below-the-waist below the grooming and hygiene, which we do appreciate. They're also the only men's brand dedicated to below-the-waist grooming and hygiene that promises to not nick or cut or snag or anything like that, so nothing unpleasant will happen when you are uh, taking care of business down south. I'm going to continue to 
to find different euphemisms for talking about this. You're implying that there are rival companies out there who specifically mm-hmm. get, don't guarantee that they'll do that. <laughs> we promise that most of the time it's going to be okay. <laughs> Only every now and then is there a catastrophic incident. I'm not going with that company. I'm going with Manscaped. So Manscaped would like our listeners, uh, they would encourage our listeners to take a second and look down and wonder when was the last time you tidied up down there? I mean, I, I do feel like in this era, it's probably been a while for some folks. <laughs> Especially if you're not going. I know you, you don't. Yeah. That stuff's not on display when you go out. But yeah, there's definitely. Is that not, are you, you don't Donald Duck it? That's not your style there? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's illegal. <laughs> With that attitude. <laughs> but if you want to sort of look your best, feel your best, then uh, Manscaped is the way to go to get your grooming game perfect. With the perfect package 3.0 Essentials Kit. That's right. It's the third generation trimmer especially features a cutting edge ceramic blade to prevent any sort of accident. Uh, it has proprietary advanced skin safe technology that they developed uh, over many months, many, many different uh, experiments. But it's the type of product that now I think Winnie the Pooh would be another example of, of shirt, no pants. I'm sure that's what he would use to make sure that everything is uh, nice and groomed down there. <laughs> That's a fun. Uh, that's a fun image for people's uh, childhood. Uh, lo- lovable bear. It sure is. It sure is. And if you're a subscriber to Manscaped, you get a new replacement mm. blade refill for your lawnmower, tr- lawnmower trimmer delivered to your door every three months, making sure your trimmer is always fresh and clean. That's right. So you can get 20% off and free shipping with the code TSS at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com. Use code TSS. Your partner, your body, and your nether regions will thank you. <laughs> thank you to Manscaped for sponsoring today's show. Mm-hmm. A uh, couple more questions, Mr. Grove. The next one comes from Zach Lippert. Why could no one stop Aryan Robin from doing the one thing he was famous for? And are there any other players in history with similarly one-dimensional skills that were unstoppable? So I think I've got the answer to the why could no one stop Aryan Robin mm-hmm. question. Yep. You ready? Uh, I'm ready. Okay, so for those who don't know, I'll put, I'll put a link to a video in the show notes. Aryan Robin was left-footed, right-winger, Almost always, cut, go as if he was going to the end line, but would then cut inside and dribble kind of across the top of the penalty area with his left foot mm-hmm. and then would shoot and it would go in the top corner. And the question was yep. always, people know he's going to do this. Why can't they stop him? I have watched many, many Iron Robin goals this morning to try and figure this out. And I think I know. Okay, you ready, Taylor? Mm-hmm. So almost always, Iron Robin, defenders get him so that he is not just dribbling laterally. He's going almost. He's going a little bit backwards. So if you're a defender, you think, I've done my job. I've got this scary guy dribbling away from goal. He's not facing goal. He's not even facing side on. He's facing slightly backwards. All is good. But the thing that Ian Robin has is this weird shooting technique where he can like swivel his ankle and get his plant foot in the correct shooting position even when he's facing the wrong way. So it's, you'll see him do that sort of swivel and spin and then the shots in the top corner. And he can do that with such pace and precision that it was too late to stop him every single time. Hmm, that, that's, that's really interesting. Yeah. So uh, how, how did you go about figuring this out? Like, what was there one specific clip when you were like, ha, I've got it. Well, I managed to find, and this is the link I'll put in the show notes, a video of like Ian Robin scoring the same goal a hundred times, <laughs> basically. Um, and I just sort of freeze-framed it every time, every time to see... One, what the angle was. And the angle was always slightly diagonally away from goal to the point where mm-hmm. defenders will think, all right, I'm doing my job, right? He's not dribbling at goal. He's not dribbling into the area. I'm doing well. Um, I don't need to go and like get in his face and close him down because I'm pushing him in a defensive way. I'm pushing him away from goal. All is good, right? Um, and then every time that shot would come, 
And I couldn't understand how he was facing the right way when he was facing almost the opposite way to begin with. And it's that weird ankle swivel plant foot thing. Because you know the thing is to have your plant foot facing the way you mm. want to shoot, right? That's kind of how you shoot. He was able to do that in such a, like a, a quick swivel, like almost whiplash motion that it just happened so quick that no one could stop him. No, I, I, I'm, I'm down with that being the answer because mine is a bit more like based on our experiences as players, but we never played anybody quite like Aryan Robin. <laughs> Luckily, right? Luckily. Yeah, I mean, mine, mine would be, I think that makes a lot of sense. The only thing I would add is just that, like, he is very, very much one-footed, but that is not to say that he's exclusively one-footed. And we have played against people who we knew he's only going to shoot with his right foot, so as long as you keep him on his left foot, he's never really going to get a shot off. And eventually we'll try to cut back, and then you can poke that ball away. Ian Robin still could shoot with, with his opposite foot, uh, and more to the point, could also get to the end line and was very, very fast. And so I think if, even if you're a defender who thinks, don't let him cut inside, don't let him cut inside... You're still fundamentally thinking, but I also want to shut him down. Yeah. And so if it feels like he's going to go to the end line, you're going to try to take that away. And now you've opened up that little bit of space. Yeah. So it's still worth noting that he's a world-class player who's capable of other things. Yeah. I think was just very good at baiting people into then allowing him to uh, pull that shot So if, if I'm understanding you correctly, it's the, mm-hmm. like, you can see the video of him scoring the same goal over and over and over again. But that's not the move that he did every single time, right? There was always right. the threat of him going to the end line, always the threat yes. of him putting a cross in, mm-hmm. um, and that, that happened a lot as well. So you've got to give the defenders some leeway by understanding yeah. that they're trying to defend multiple threats, right? Yeah, it wasn't like, oh, he would always like step over with his right foot, take it with the outside of his left, and then have that shot. It wasn't like there was this like three-step pattern that always indicated he was doing a thing. Like Sometimes he would throw a move, sometimes it would just be a quick cut, sometimes it would be a faint one way and a pullback. Yeah. Uh, lots of different things, but uh, always pretty lethal. Okay, and so to the question of uh, players in history with similarly one-dimensional skills that mm-hmm. were unstoppable. Yeah, I mean... Unstoppable is the uh, like defining word there because there are many players that I think were very dominant with one foot. Uh, the ones that immediately came to mind, I would say Lionel Messi with that left foot is is pretty left footed, but I think can obviously use the other foot if need be. Uh, Diego Maradona, similarly. The one that will forever come to my mind, I'm guessing you can guess who I'm about to say, it's Antonio Valencia. <laughs> Antonio Valencia, <laughs> I don't, I think the entire time he was at Manchester United maybe used his left foot three times. <laughs> yeah, I think that's true. <laughs> and it is it is a Man United thing as well because I would say Ryan Giggs pretty left footed and but I, again it wasn't that same level of like always did the same thing or always did yeah. roughly the same thing and found a way through so I do think that is unique to Aryan Robin in my mind unless you have uh, some well, examples of the opposite I think you're very focused on which foot people are using right I I'm more focused on the idea of uh, like a single skill that people couldn't shut uh, down okay and I would go mm-hmm. with uh, David Beckham crossing. Right, because Beckham really didn't have like many tricks or moves or a lot of pace to get away from people, and it was more that he just didn't need much room in order to swing one of those beautiful, beautiful crosses in. So I think that's a, I think Beckham's a good example of a one-dimensional skill that was that seemed unstoppable. I'm not trying to be difficult here, but then with the Beckham free kicks, does that factor in as well? Because I would argue like a free kick is different than a cross, so then those two different skills. Yeah, I mean, um, oh, so maybe he has uh, more than one skill that's unstoppable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, pretty yeah. much. But I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm specifically like, talking about those crosses that would be whipped in from the right, even though mm-hmm. Beckham didn't have a lot of yeah. sort of pace to get away from you to make the space. So I'm arguing that he was very good at pulling off these like really dangerous curling crosses that would bend around a defense and land on Ruud van Nistelrooy's head, um, even when he didn't have a lot of room to work with. Yeah, yeah, that ma- that makes a lot of sense to me. I'm now thinking about other players with like one type of style. And and it's difficult because I think you're right that there are those moments like David Beckham uh, with the way he would deliver crosses, with the way he would deliver free kicks. Maybe Roberto Carlos with the way he took free kicks as well. But obviously he had what, other hitting them really hard and mostly so, like, quite defining. 
Yeah, but like use the kind of outside of the laces to put that crazy spin on it. Yeah. It was more than just that one free kick, I promise. Though that one free kick will always reign supreme. <laughs> do you do you have like, any more I, in, in this category? I mean, like it doesn't quite work because it's two different skills, but I would always I almost say like Kylian Mbappe's acceleration but then deceleration is a like very unique skill like I think of him as being one of the fastest players in the game but the way he can then slow down on a dime like it really does put defenders at an incredible disadvantage because by the time they're able to maybe catch up to him he can stop on a dime they will run another 10 yards and then he can get wide open for a shot (laughs) you could also put in this category like the really really tall players that would like just be unbeatable in the air like uh, Mm a Yang Collar or yeah. Peter Crouch, or that guy that you could always almost guarantee that if you could send a long ball forward, they could flick it onto someone or they could hold it up. Yeah. I, I, I have a hard time saying that Peter Crouch was unbeatable the way Jan Kohler was, but I think that's just because I find Jan Kohler terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm talking unbeatable in the air, right? Yeah. You, can, yeah. you can be as good a centre-back as you want, but if Crouch manages to get body position, which he was quite good at, or Jan Kohler manages to do it, there was a good good chance that they were at least getting their head to it. That, all right, that makes sense to me. And with that in mind, like this, this is maybe being way too generous because Fernando Llorente did many things. But I will forever go back to that Ajax Spurs game yes. where his back to goal, the way he would bring stuff down and hold it up, like they would put two men on him and he would still fight them both off and pull that off. And that like isn't quite what uh, Zach is asking, but it is a thing that it, when I like search my brain really quickly to think of a player who could do a thing that I just remember being like, how is he doing that every time? Llorente bringing the ball down under pressure <laughs> is definitely one of those things. Didn't do a lot of other things the way Tottenham fans would have liked, though. So I don't know if they'll love me bringing him up. I've got one final suggestion for this. Mm-hmm. Aaron Wan-Bissaka's tackling. Oh, boy. I love that man. Right? So I'm not one. He makes me so one happy. dimensional sounds harsh, but I'd argue one dimensional is harsh on Ian Robbins' skill, right? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But I've I've seen. I can't remember who it was. I saw a recent Premier League player complain that um, he's he's like so Wambasaka is so bendy at the hips that it looks mm-hmm. like he's going to injure himself every time that he's putting a tackle in. But he instead yeah. he comes out not injured and with the ball. Yes, I'm terrified for the time that he does injure himself. Yeah. But yes, I would agree with everything you just described. <laughs> you ready for the final? Isn't he, I think he's nicknamed like the spider or something yes, like that. Yes, that very spider. reason. Are you ready mm-hmm. for the final question? I am. It's from Seth Irby. Seth wants to know what characters or combination of characters from your favorite TV shows are you most closely aligned with? And th- we're not doing I'm this for each say- other, right? We've done this for ourselves. We, we're not, except that Daryl did message to say that he thought he had a combination, uh, which I then shared with my wife. And she basically, she racked her brains and came away with like, yep, that's pretty much it. Well, what was it? I forgot what I said. You said I'm 80% Jake Peralta and 20% Captain Holt. Oh, no. This was Seth's suggestion. He, Seth oh, says, I thought that was you. No, Seth says, why do I feel like oh. Taylor is 80% Peralta and 20% wow. Holt? And well, then I, Seth knows me better than you do, Daryl, because Seth is correct. I mean, I at least agreed with it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's pretty accurate because, like, I would like to say that I'm, you know, like Ben Wyatt, where I'm kind of nerdy and financially responsible, but I'm definitely not as, like, organized and disciplined as him. I think Jake Peralta, like, I see my desk right now. Yeah, it, yeah. it could it could be uh, a landfill in India. Uh, <laughs> that is that is accurate. And I do have the, I think, the goofiness and high energy, but maybe the professionalism when it comes to my career. And then I think Captain Holt. Margaret asked me why uh, I, I would say Holt, and I said, because I'm very serious about a certain number of things, and I really, really, really like my dog. Absolutely, yeah. The 20% halt really rang true for me because I think if you like, when you get into, I'm going to research Mario Goetze at Bayern Munich, uh-huh. <laughs> then you get yeah. an answer like we got earlier, right? Which I really enjoyed. But I could tell that you've really looked into that and have gone very detailed mm-hmm. look at what happened there. I could see Holt applying the same commitment to researching Mario Goetze. Yeah, and then I think I inherited from my brother. <laughs> I appreciate that. And then from my brother, I inherited the the like 
need to research bands and be like, oh, well, their second bass player was much better than their first bass player. And that is also a whole thing of like, <laughs> oh, that, that flautist was not nearly as good as the replacement flautist. <laughs> Something about the way uh, he says flautist, right? That's really funny, yes. Andre Brown. Um, so what other um, TV characters did you uh, feel you were aligned with? I mean, uh, again, there's a lot that, like, I think it's me wanting to be more like that person. That's fine. Uh, That's like, why uh, this question is tough, right? It would almost mm. be easier if it was, like, asking me to do you and you to do me. I think it's tougher and more interesting to ask people to do themselves. Yeah, like, I, I think, like, some people, like, would maybe go Ron Swanson for me, but I feel like I'm a, li- a bit more Leslie Nope. But again, I don't know if I have the energy and discipline to get nearly as much as she does done. <laughs> but I think I have uh, a lot of intensity that sometimes is is borderline annoying to people. <laughs> um, and a lot of, like, the, like, uh, upbeat uh, vibes that sometimes can be a bit much. I think my brother once told me, like, you know, you don't have to be, like, upbeat and optimistic all the time, right? <laughs> uh, so so maybe that's part of it. Uh, that That's that's maybe one for me i had one for you but i was curious to hear uh, some of yours first yeah i've got like a handful for myself i would say my wife suggested this uh, and i agreed with it um chris traeger from parks and rec i think i sometimes have his annoying optimism in a, uh, yeah i could see in that. a sort of like that. we can do this everything's great like let's keep going kind of way yeah that my wife doesn't always appreciate but I, the here's here's the thing, and this is where I get into being a Parks and Rec nerd, is that he is like my 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 frustration with Chris Traeger is that he's optimistic, but he's also optimistic because he never actually has to deal with anything negative himself. <laughs> he always says other people do it, and you are a person who will deal with the negative and kind of like in a blunt but not uh, like unflattering or rude sort of way. So I feel like Chris Tra- Chris Traeger should wish he were more like you. Oh wow! That's what All I right, I'll take that. Um, I'll take that. Um, if we're sticking with Parks and Rec, I've got two others. He did have a debilitating illness as a child though so there is that what was it it was the thing that like he was supposed to die when he was really young and he didn't but that's why he's obsessed with being healthy now oh yes 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 (laughs) i've also cooked many a veggie burger um (laughs) two other parks and no parks and nope parks and rec Mm -hmm. um parks and rec characters i've got leslie nope's belief that other people will do the right thing and i'm often let down by that um and (laughs) i would say i've got andy dwyer's clumsiness i am you have seen me knock stuff over in the office a million times right uh, I, I would go with lack of grace. Maybe you yeah. have DeAndre Reynolds' lack of grace. <laughs> so that, yeah, that might be it. Um, the other thing I think I've got um, from The Sopranos, um, Tony oh, Soprano's boy. annoyed Uh-oh. deep breath. Not his, not his sense of menace, but that long deep breath he gives out when he's really frustrated. You eat way more quietly, though. Uh, I've spent enough time with you to know that if you didn't, we'd have issues. <laughs> that man is the loudest, the loudest acting eater I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> I've also um, given myself um, from the wire um, Bunk's stoicism. You know, sometimes about that Bunk will sometimes just be like, "Yeah, oh, that's mm-hmm. the way it is." Yeah, let's just move on. Yeah, with it. yeah. <laughs> I could see that. I think. Yeah, I, I think I always go in like immediately to the flaws, and I'm just like, "Yeah, but you're not a womanizing alcoholic." So <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm only taking pieces <laughs> yeah. of people's characters. It's not the main thing. Mm-hmm. And then my final one is I've got Brandon Stark's ability to walk into animals. I don't know if you knew that. <laughs> I did not know that. That's that's really uh, troubling. Yeah, it's a Daryl. Total Man, exclusive. I feel like I feel like it, I didn't even think about Game of Thrones. There's definitely a Ned Stark, a Ned Starky, and like, well, this is how it's supposed to be. And even though it's not going to be the right way to do it, I feel like this is how it should be done, and therefore we're going to go this way. I, I've probably got that level yeah. of uh, maybe thick headedness is one way. Plus, of you're it. always chopping off guys' heads. I mean, you know, if you. If you uh, don't do the crime, however marginal, if you don't want to get your head cut yeah. off. I think that is that is the official Rockwell motto. Do you know what? Looking, you, looking back on Game of Thrones, that poor mm-hmm. guy in the first episode who gets his head cut off, yeah. um, that guy was right. 
the whole I mean, the whole of the rest of Game of Thrones is a justification of what that guy was saying. Yeah, I mean, if we maybe some spoilers for Game of Thrones. Yeah, like they they establish very very early that Ned Stark is sort of too beholden to his principles to maybe see the writing on the wall. And and it is the case that like he really could win Game of Thrones like four different times in that first season and just can like he tells Cersei. I mean, come on now. Yeah. You can't tell her what you know. You know how that's going to play out and it plays out exactly as we thought it would. So, maybe no one should aspire to be like Ned Stark uh, even though that was the entire narrative for the last like two seasons. But I'm not I'm not even talking about Ned Stark. I'm talking about the guy that he killed in the early rounds of the first Mm -hmm. episode that guy was right all along that guy i don't know i feel like everybody on game of thrones owes that guy an apology i mean he abandoned his post (sighs) (laughs) um this will not resonate with you because you have not watched the american office but you are pretty much definitively oscar martinez from the office i know who oscar is uh, yeah yeah, you, you are very much Oscar because Oscar is the one who I think there's like literally an episode where he refers to like himself and Jim and Pam as like the rational crew <laughs> or like the level headed crew in the office. Um, I think he also has a an inherent distaste for working in an office, but recognizes he has to. And I feel like you definitely do not love working in an office, but it's the sort of pragmatism and still ability to uh, to be creative and be a little bit goofy because the situation requires it, as Oscar is when he has to do a southern accent to explain the branch going under. I don't know if you've ever seen that clip, but it's <laughs> outstanding. Uh, and then he also is able to explain things in a like very simplistic way that could otherwise be complicated, uh, such as uh, surpluses and things like that. <laughs> oh, I've got one more for me. I hmm. definitely have some of Chidi's uh, second-guessing and indecision. I, w- I was thinking cheaty, but then he is so indecisive. Yeah, I think if you if you took like ten percent cheaty, maybe that yeah. is that is pretty much you. Because again, you do have the like the morality behind it. So <laughs> that did come to mind for me. Whereas I I, I liked Eleanor's sort of uh, ruthlessness on occasion. You are an Arizona dirtbag. <laughs> <laughs> I want nothing to do with Arizona. <laughs> and you love you love justified almost as much as the judge in that in uh, in the good place. Oh, I do enjoy me some Justify. <laughs> yeah. Although I think I don't lo- like th- that is a great show. But when you look at how many people Timothy Oliphant shot, I'm pretty sure he is not uh, in law enforcement anymore. Oh, okay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I do appreciate that they about four episodes into that first season, they abandoned the like consistent thing of having to say the shooting was justified. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't like we just you can just assume from that on that it's going to be justified. <laughs> do you have any more for yourself? I mean, again, I would like to say that I have. Boyd Crowder's uh, lyrical ability and uh, verbosity, but I'm not sure I do. No, I'd say you use too many words uh, compared to Boyd Crowder. Boyd Crowder is like the most loquacious individual there is. He's almost Shakespearean. How dare you? Oh no, I've got that mixed up. Boyd Crowder is the Walter Goggins character, right? Yeah, who'd you think I meant? The uh, the Timothy oh, Oliphant character. Yeah. Oh, okay. As long as it's that and not like Dewey Crow or something. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Any any more for any more before we wrap this up? I mean, and you're also very much just very similar to Ross Geller in every way. <laughs> Actually, I nearly put Ross on my list. Really? Yeah, because I'm definitely... I say that mostly as fighting words. Um, I, I feel like I don't do this with you, but there's definitely sometimes where I just think I'm definitely right and I'll um, let people know even if it's really unpopular. And I feel like Ross used to do that a lot on Friends. You know, he's like uh, yeah, the, the gesture true. where he like uh, waves his hands down to like to quiet it down. I feel like I've been that guy on occasion. <laughs> yeah, I hope you've never made that gesture, but maybe you have. <laughs> um, all right. If anyone's got any more based on listening to us talk, I mean, people have listened to us talk for a good many years now, right? So people will have a, a good feel for our personalities. Uh, I think I think my problem with this question really is that the shows that I've been rewatching are all 
very much featuring like demented characters <laughs> who are all sort of like I don't really think I don't think I want to have anything in common with anybody from the cast of Always Sunny. It's why do you know that story about why Glenn Howerton's character is named Dennis? Yeah, cuz he didn't want to he didn't want it to be Glenn. Yeah. Yeah. Cuz it's like like Rob is uh yeah. or Rob McElhenney is Mac, Charlie Day is Charlie. Yeah. <laughs> he, he wanted to distance himself as much as possible. So I think maybe I shouldn't draw any comparisons between myself and anybody on that show. You should not. And I was wrapping up by saying, um if you've been listening to the show and you have an idea for TV characters that you think we are like, um please tweet them at us at Total Soccer Show and we'll be um interested in reading them. Let's put it that way. Interested in reading yeah. them, indeed. indeed. <laughs> All right. Thank you to everybody for today's questions. We will be answering more questions in the near future on the Total Soccer Show. We will be reviewing the final episode of Sunderland Till I Die, the sixth episode of Sunderland Till I Die, um, in the very near future. And I know we mentioned it a long time ago, but we've been working behind the scenes mm-hmm. in a big old Google Doc um, for to do the uh, classic club teams knockout tournament, which we definitely still have planned. It's, it got big, right, Taylor? It's going to be yep. 32 teams. It's, it's one of those things that, like, it's, it's, sort of, it's sort of like reading a, a fairly dense book that, like, you kind of keep putting it off and keep putting it off because you're aware of how big it's going to be. And then once you get into it, you're like, why did I put this off? This is going to be great. When we came up with that list, primarily Daryl came up with, like, the first, like, 26 teams. Looking at it, I was like, oh, I want to talk about every single one of these teams. And now I am super-duper excited <laughs> to get this underway. And then in terms of more future content, uh, Taylor, George Qureshi has just texted me. Uh, mm-hmm. asking when we're going to record the first episode of um, the book club thing that we're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the answer is sometime next week. So you and George are doing that book club, and then Alexis and I, Alexis and I are going to do a like picture book, I think, review. That's our style. <laughs> Coloring book review. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I think we're, This pop-up book was very startling. I think we're also planning another Cooligans um, Twitch crossover, right, for mm-hmm. next Tuesday, at, tentatively at, what, 5 o'clock? Uh, yes, yeah. I, and I'm excited. I enjoyed the one. I enjoyed the one last night. I enjoyed Alexis asking us questions that we clearly could not have known the answer to, uh, so that he could tell us stories about his childhood. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, uh, can people go back and watch that? I'm not sure how Twitch works. If you can rewatch things that happened, or if it has to be live, we'll find out next week. We'll find out next uh, week. You are correct to not throw to me on that. One. <laughs> Instead, I'll just throw to you, Taylor, to say thank you for taking the time to talk to me today. Right back at you, buddy. Listeners, thank you for listening, and we will talk to you again very soon. Bye.